Father, we thank you so much again for your wonderful mercy to us, better than we deserve, but we thank you for it. We ask that your Holy Spirit will guide us again today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Now, I've got too much stuff, and we probably won't get through it all, and I've got oodles of stuff. <laughs> Other things I'm going to, but I've been praying about it, what I should present today, so I've been working. Give us the best stuff. I think, well, it's some of the best, but <laughs> I don't know, there's some other stuff too, but um, this one, kind of a con continuation of yet from yesterday, and uh, talk about the America, the dragon, and Babylon. These are the three entities in the last days that we'll, we'll have to contend with. <clears throat> and uh, here, this is a summary, I'm not going to go through a lot of slides for the summary of what we did yesterday. In the, it's kind of a brought everything together. <clears throat> We're not going to be dealing with Nebuchadnezzar with, except with this. So say this, that if you want to study a case study of justification by faith, it's Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 4, God laid his glory in the dust. Ellen White says that the, she asked the question, what is justification by faith? She said, it is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and then doing for him that which he cannot do for himself. And chapter 4 of Daniel was not written by Daniel. He took it out of the uh, a government document and put it in, <laughs> in his book. But it's a testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, of his conversion experience. And you can trace his conversion experience from chapter 1. He was interested in their health and in their educational ability. They were ten times wiser than all the wise men in, uh, in Babylon, and that included their teachers, I'm sure. <clears throat> and then chapter two, the image, uh, he was impressed with what God could do after he'd given a death decree to everyone. Daniel saved the neck of the wise men. Then by chapter three, and I, I follow the, the, the uh, Septuagint on that time-wise, <clears throat> there's about 18 years difference between chapter two and chapter seven. Uh, I mean, not seven, chapter three in chapter 3. And in that time, Nebuchadnezzar was mulling over what he heard. God said, you are this head of gold. <laughs> By chapter 3, he was rejecting that, and he made an entire golden image and commanded everyone to bow down to it, and uh, they refused to do it. But chapter 4 is the conversion experience where he finally was humbled in the dust. And um, he, had, he, was, he became a vegetarian, by the way. He went out and ate, ate grass with, <laughs> with the animals. <laughs> and I don't know what happened to him after that. But, but anyhow, that's, that's all we're going to touch on with him. The other ones we've dealt with uh, to a degree. Central to chapter 5 of Revelation, uh, verse 6, where John saw the lamb slain and he was in the middle of the throne. And this is, represents the cross of Christ. That the cross is central to the... Uh, uh, to the book of Revelation. Uh, we, we talked about this the first day, I think. Christ is mentioned 25 times presented as, uh, as a lamb in the book of Revelation. And it always has to do with sacrifice. So that's the, that was the issue. And so this picture that we saw here a little bit ago, let me go back one, one slide. Uh, and so the, no, not that one, two slides, I guess. Uh, the Lamb, the Lord chose to represent the beginning of the United States as a lamb-like beast with the two horns, small nubbins, representing republicanism and what? 
Protestantism. Protestantism, yeah. And, uh, and it, exactly, yes. That was, and that was, that's the secret of our power. We're losing that now. And, uh, we'll lose it altogether one of these days. But, but anyhow, that's the, <clears throat> the kind of the background of this. Uh, <clears throat> in, uh, yeah, here, here's another one that covered the dragon up on this one. But, but we need to remember that as the papacy was going down, and let's go to Revelation chapter 13. As the papacy was going down, the United States was rising. And um, in uh, chapter 13, and the, I think I've got the verses there. Yeah, uh, verse 3. The, uh, this is where we see the sea beast and the wounding of it. Verse 3, I saw one of his heads as it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So this, this is uh, started in 1798 and it will again come into power. I think, I think we're seeing that now. You find in Europe, the Pope has a tremendous amount of uh, authority over the states over there or the nations. Uh, he was involved in the nations as they were deciding laws for the their co for the common good, and one of them is, was the Sunday law that he was pushing, and they got it. It's, at least in Germ Germany, I don't know if all of them have, but Germany is pretty dead on Sunday now, and uh, it used to be a very uh, commercially uh, commercial idea for Sunday people selling things. But anyhow, then uh, verse ten. This is the downfall. It says, he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience of, and the faith of the saints. And then verse 11, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb. And we're going to stop right there for the time being. We're going to come back with the rest of it later on. But, uh, <clears throat> but the United States was represented as a lamb to begin with. And that would have to, it has to do with the characteristics of Christ. Gentleness. Um, in fact, there was a tremendous battle going on in the United States for several years. Many wanted to have, uh, did not want to go to war. Every, when we have some, some people today who say, hey, we need to stay within our borders <clears throat> and, and don't worry about what's going on uh, outside of America. But um, so the picture of a lamb was depicting the United States. And we already looked at this before. Revelation 12, 13 through 16 says the earth helped the woman that had been persecuted. We looked at chapter 11 of Daniel, the similar words. Under persecution, God opened the way through, the, through Protestantism, the Reformation in England, or in, yeah, in uh, Europe, England, and then finally in the United States. But uh, had, had this thing um, occurred in in uh, Europe, it would not have taken off. I mean, as far as the third angel's message, we looked at that yesterday also. Here is a map of the United States in the 1600s. <clears throat> not very much of it, just on the East Coast. Uh, and then here's a drawing of, of the, the English settlement in, in America, the 13 states on the, on the uh, East Coast. Um, here's uh, from a man by the name of Townsend. He said, the mystery of her coming forth from vacancy like a silent seed, we grew into an empire. And Smith had this to say, emerging amid the silence of the earth, adding daily to its power and its strength. And here, was, this is 
this, I think, is the main reason that we have not been uh, trodden underfoot uh, fully. As we get away from this, we're going to see more of uh, uh, the power of God's people taken. But he says, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And then this one, this, and this comes from the Declaration, the first paragraph of the Declaration, or second one. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now notice it says the pursuit of happiness. It doesn't say happiness. It says the pursuit of it. Um, <clears throat> but before you can have a pursuit of happiness or happiness, you must first have what? Liberty. Liberty of conscience. Before that, you must have life. Now let's take a look at, uh, see the re relationship between justification and life. Let's go to Romans chapter 5 and uh, notice verse 18. And he's comparing uh, Adam, the two Adams, Christ and, uh, and the first Adam. Verse, the first part says, as though one man's offense or through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. So justification brings life. Then you have, uh, from life, then you have liberty of conscience, as we've been talking about from day to day. And then from that comes the pursuit of happiness. But again... Justification by faith, liberty of conscience is inseparable. Where if you have one, you'll have the other. If you deny one, you deny the other. If one is taken away, the other will be taken away, uh, for, you know, uh, corporately, but not individually. America was opened after the Middle Age feudal system was spent. And this is what politicians in the United States today, as well as religious, some religious leaders, are trying to bring us back into that feudal state where you have the Pope on top, kings and everything underneath. <clears throat> and this is, uh, um, it, it's going to be coming, going to, well, the, the whole globalization, this movement, this is primarily what they're, uh, what they're gunning for, Pope especially. He hates, he hates capitalism with a passion, and he's not afraid to speak about it. Uh, <clears throat> but after time, even Protestants began stop persecuting one another. Uh, you have so I think I've got it, the next one here. Like Massachusetts Bay, uh, it was a state-controlled church. They had gotten away from that in England and in Holland. Uh, well, not so much Holland, but England primarily. And they came here and they set up the same concepts of we're this, we're this uh, church and the state uh, enforces our laws. And it wasn't until Roger Williams came along and he uprooted the whole thing, starting a new colony. And his, his principles were embodied in the, uh, in the Constitution, both, well, I'd say the, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Um, there were to be no kings, you mentioned, no kings, no nobles, no union of church and state. And uh, we, do, you see, do you see a movement today of joining church and state to get today? It started out very um, subtly. Um, it came through the use of money, giving it to uh, churches for uh, humanitarian needs. And uh, some of the politicians felt that that was the safest thing to do, would give it to a church because they're honest. <laughs> and for the most part, they should be, yes. They make up distortion of the Constitution, that's what I was saying. 
They made up the Constitution, so I tested with this idea of the church and state is, is very practical. It should be where the Constitution was made more towards the atheistic side so they could keep religion from controlling it. Yeah. But I've heard uh, through even a couple of pastors I've conference saying that, uh, I'm trying to think which pastor or evangelist, but he was saying they made up an alternate constitution that, that fits and takes statements to make it seem like that was never the case separating the church and state. Well, there are some of the, no, yeah, there are some uh, preachers. There's a fellow by the name of uh, Barton out of Texas. He's, I don't think he's a preacher, but he, he's a historian. And he has written a lot and spoken a lot. There are many people are following him, but he's been proven wrong. He's, some of his uh, statements are, are totally wrong. But there is a movement of people wanting to have a union of church and state. And it's, it's coming. There's no doubt about it. And we believe it will come through the, probably through the Sunday law. But there may be other things that, that will lead up to it. Um, but we're in the process of it now. And um, here I've got a few pictures here about the eagle. This would be 1776. Uh, going, going with glory. But notice what's happening to the eagle today. Shedding some tears is what's, what's happening. And hanging his head. Uh, this is what we're seeing uh, in, in America. Uh, here's a... Some of you have probably read or you have the book or you've heard about the Keys of the Blood by... Malachi Martin, he said some powerful things in here. He was a Jesuit. I don't know if he was ever separated from the church, a Catholic church or not. I know he was not, he could have been a secular priest by now, I don't know. But he wrote about things. Some believe he was actually poisoned by the church because of some of the things that he said. I, I don't know whether it's true or not. But uh, this is what he had to say. Willing or not, ready or not, we are all involved in an all-out, no-holds-barred, three-way global competition. Most of us are not competitors. However, we are the stakes. Um, this was written in the, uh, in the 1990s. And uh, communism was still a force in the world. And this is what he had to say. The competition is about who will establish the first one-world system of government that has ever existed in the society of nations. It is about who will hold and wield the dual power of authority and control over each of us as individuals and over all of us together as a community. So here are the three that he outlined. Capitalism in the West was contending for superiority. Catholicism in uh, Europe, Rome, the second one. The third one was, was the uh, communist one. And he made a statement like this, uh, this is paraphrasing, but he said, capitalists really don't want control of the world. All they want to do is make money. <laughs> and so he said, they're not prepared to control the world. There's only two that are able to control the world. That is the papacy, and she's been around the longest. The second is communism. And he was predicting, or had predicted, that communism would fall. And we we certainly see it. It's still it's still fighting, but uh, I'd say the the main force is right here in, in the United States, the educational system. But so the communism has whoops, did, I must have hit the wrong one on that. Yeah, communism is is uh, pretty well down the tube. And you remember here with a very, you remember we talked about the um, holy alliance that took place in the 1800s. Uh, in Europe, where they were trying to 
put kings back on the thrones and trying to control uh, Central and South America uh, with Spain. We wanted Spain in control. And the Monroe Doctrine came out. We looked at that yesterday. Monroe said, no, you're not going to do that. He drew a line in the sand and said, uh, these people in Central and South America have chosen to be states not controlled by Europe. And if you attack one of them, it's going to be the same as attacking the United States, and we will fight for them. And that's what halted that. And Russia was on the northeast. I mentioned that. Uh, Russia was trying to come in uh, from the northeast down through the coast of California. And at the same time, they said there will be no colonization by anyone in Europe. And so that put an end to the Russians coming in. But it was the Russians, Austrians, and uh, what was the third one? Russia, Austria, and Prussia. They were the three that decided that they were going to throw out this idea of, of Republican form of government, both in uh, France and the United States. And they, they got France. They finally went back to a king. But, but uh, then Port, Portugal and, and Spain were the two that uh, they were banking on, but it didn't happen. So now we have a, uh, in the Time magazine, wrote about this holy alliance in modern times when, when uh, Reagan and the Pope, they had been doing this for almost 10 years, secretly trying to overthrow the communists in Poland, and they were successful. And uh, so these are, these are things happening, going on. Then, <clears throat> then this. This is one of the saddest pictures I think I've ever seen. This is the healing of the deadly wound. We have three presidents worshiping, well, I shouldn't say worshiping, they're, but they are bowing down on their knees before a dead pope. And this thing went throughout the world. I have another picture of it where, uh, where these are in the background, not so in the background, but in the background you can see some of the uh, cardinals. And I think every one of them were standing <laughs> while these presidents were bowing down uh, to their god. It just, it's a frightening situation. This, would, this could not have happened 50 years ago or maybe 75. <laughs> uh, but even Kennedy, when he was elect elected uh, president, he denounced the idea of the union of church and state. Whether he believed it or not, uh, we, we don't know about that, but he, he would not allow it while he was here, and, uh, or while he was alive. But, um, but so the, the lamb-like beast morphs into a dragon. Born a lamb, yet a dragon in maturity. <coughs> There's no similarity between the two, between a lamb and a... Uh, they're as far away as you can get in, in uh, nature. Um, but it's an amazing prophecy, and let's, let's finish it in Revelation uh, 13, uh, 13, 11, where, where it speaks about the change that would take place. And... Uh, <clears throat> Well, the first part again. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. So this is the change that's going to take place. But I would say this, it's still going to appear as a lamb. as a lamb, And that's going to be the, the deceptive power of, uh, of the United States as we get down closer to the end. Um, <clears throat> there's nothing like this in Scripture at all. Nowhere then how did one become the other? So here's, here's a picture, again, of the lamb. And we'll just watch him as he's morphed. Here we have a lamb. Then we have 
He's morphed into still looking like a lamb, but he's speaking like a dragon. And this is the one behind the whole system. The devil himself is pictured in Revelation especially as, uh, as a dragon. And uh, there's no evidence that the dragon will morph back again to, into a lamb. Um, the evidence of history, we know of the decline and eventual fall of every republic that's ever been in existence. There's only been a few of them. The main ones was um, Rome and the United States. There were other ones, and there are even some today that uh, claim to be a republic, which is the government of the people, by the people, and for the people. But um, there's, there's always been a failure of republics because the reason for it is a republic should be a people governed by self-control under God. And when you lose self-control, you lose, you lose government. And so you have to have someone at the head of a government to control things. And that's what we're seeing today. We're, we're seeing, uh, we're, we're heading toward, in fact, I think uh, we're, we're already there, where you've got people who do not want law at all. And so you've got to have someone uh, in, in charge of government uh, to control people. And uh, some of the rioting that's going on in the streets. Uh, one of these days, we're going to see a, um, a clamp down on this. People are not, got, not going to be able to do this. Yes. Yes. Well, or, well, tyranny sometimes brings anarchy. Yes. Because we, we, yeah, we're seeing we're seeing both both things happen, and uh, it's uh, we're we're still living in the I think the best time of the of the world's history, but it's going to get interesting before it gets before it gets over. Um, the uh, liberty once lost is almost never recovered. Now, Israel did because they turned back to God and God restored them. And I think, I have a personal conviction that if the, if the American people would turn back to God honestly, that God would, would put a stop to what's going on. But I don't think it's going to happen. There's going to be a false revival. In fact, we're, I think we're seeing a false revival today in, uh, in, in Christianity. But once our civil, our property, another one, property rights. This is a, another factor. If you take away your property, you have control that way. So you've got civil property and uh, religious rights. If they're lost, they will not be recovered until Jesus comes. And then they're going to be restored to his people. But the, there's no respect for basic human rights such as life, liberty, and conscience and the pursuit of happiness. When the enemy is in control, he is in absolute control of those who submit to him. They may not know they're submitting to him, but he's controlling the minds, the consciences of uh, mankind. Uh, to not recognize the difference between the lamb and the, uh, and the dragon is our danger to, to, today. Because he, he comes as an angel of light. Paul talks about that in the letter to the Corinthians. He says, don't marvel that even if the, if the uh, preachers or the pastors... Uh, turn, turn themselves into angels of light too. But the devil himself comes as an angel of light, looking, uh, sounding like it's the real thing. And, but it's a deception. Jesus, what did Jesus say? Uh, beware of uh, wolves in, sharps, in sheep's clothes. And now we need to beware of dragons in sheep's clothes. Um, but we never must... We need, we need to remember this, that Jesus is still in control of nations as well as in, of churches. 
Revelation chapter 1 gives us a picture of Christ walking among the candlesticks. And we read about that, I think, the first time. Uh, chapter 1, verse 4, and then the last verse of the Bible, the book of uh, Revelation is a book that uh, has two bookends of grace, at the beginning of it and at the end of it. And in between, you have all the rest of the book of Revelation combined. Right in the center is the three angels' message. And we notice that uh, Ellen White says that uh, justification by faith is the third angel's message in verity. So Christ is still in control. And um, Jesus is control. Now, what, are, what do the candlesticks represent? Churches. And what about the stars? Angels. Okay, the angels. Yeah, okay. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, not not to fly. Well, I'm sure they have an influence, but they're speaking specifically about uh, leadership in the in the churches. And <clears throat> what we have here uh, with the churches, and Christ must have wept as he saw what was happening, starting with Ephesus, and then you have steps down all the way down to Thyatira. That was the bottom of the pit, Pergamos and Thyatira. Then there was a building up of God's program. The Reformation started at the end of Thyatira, and Sardis is mostly uh, Protestantism. And then they ran out of steam, <clears throat> and uh, God raised up the Millerite movement. And they're known as the Philadelphia Church. What does Philadelphia mean, by the way? Brotherly love. Brotherly love, okay. Now, when Laodicea came along, uh, there were many Adventists involved in that. They were Millerites in the 1850s. And James White wrote a little blurb in the back, back of the, in the review uh, that we, Advent believers, are Laodicea. And Ellen White had written that we're Laodicea. This sent shockwaves among the Adventists because they, they believed they were still Philadelphia. They could not see that they were, were Laodicea. And that's one of the pictures that Christ gives he says, you're all of these things and you don't know it at all. <laughs> so we have to accept it by faith. Uh, but anyhow, the, the um, Laodicea, and we'll look at that a little bit later uh, also, but uh, one look at four divisions in the book of Revelation. The seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven heads. And we're going to deal with the seven heads uh, mostly probably. We're going to do a tour of the heavenly sanctuary in the book of Revelation. Uh, the four divisions. And here, the line of prophecy in which these symbols, this speaking about the three angels, are found begins with Revelation 12 with the dragon that sought to destroy Christ at his birth. The dragon is said to be Satan. So this was a line of prophecy. And uh, you have um, the, out, the framework of the, of, the, of the sanctuary. You've got the first, first apartment, second apartment, and the work of Christ in them. And here we've got the, um, the seventh church, which would be Laodicea. There's nothing that comes after that. Uh, by the way, I want to stop a little bit here. The, the, um, there's no eighth church. Is there, have you ever found where the scripture said there'd be an eighth church? There are people today, as they were doing, even in Ellen White's day, calling uh, the, the church Babylon. Now, there are many, many mistakes going on in the church. There's no doubt about it. But if God, if God laid aside or put aside the Advent movement, he would have to start over again, and it would take time <laughs> to develop a people to be ready to meet him. And so 
we're in the last church. We can't get out of it <laughs> unless, we, unless we turn our back on it. I remember one time giving a, a series of lectures, and there was a fellow that came in. He was from, I think he was from the Davidians. I'm not altogether sure. But he, was a, he had a nice singing voice, and he could play the guitar very well. And he would sit out in the um, kind of a waiting room, and she, he'd be strumming his guitar, singing. Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people. <laughs> and I knew one of the guys that was with him, he had been a pretty solid admiss at one time, and he wanted, this, this fellow that I knew, wanted to convince me that the church was wrong, and that I was wrong. And so I listened to him, listened to his argument, and uh, when I got through, I said, well, do, you, do you believe the Adventist church is Babylon? And he didn't want didn't to answer. And I said, do you believe that the Seventh-day Adventist church is Babylon? He said, yes, I do. I said, that's all I need to know. I'm going to leave you. Goodbye. <laughs> and this singer jumped up, and he was just furious because he wanted an argument. <laughs> and I said, no. I said, uh, I said uh, there's, there are many mistakes in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, many things that need to be straightened out. But, uh, but you guys are not going to do it. And an illustration, I don't remember if I used this with him or not, but here's an illustration that I use with people like this. And they're trying to clean up the church. I said, the church needs to be cleaned up. There's no doubt about it. But I said, when a woman cleans house, where does she do? How does she do it? Inside the house. She doesn't start on the porch and sweeping out this way. I said, you guys are out on the porch. <laughs> and uh, but it, it must come from within. It has, and it comes from conversion. You know, yes. Shaking has a lot to do with that. Early yes. Writings. Yeah. Purify the church. I tell people it's caught up into that. So yeah. God's going to purify the church Himself. Yeah. Are you going to be there sometime? Yeah. I yeah. Go on that yeah, yeah. Okay, so we've got seven churches, the seven seals, and it, car it carries us a little further than the, than the seven churches. And then you have the seven trumpets. They cover the same geographical area, but, well, even more than that. But then you have the destroyers of the earth that are uh, mentioned in chapter 11 of uh, Revelation. And then the seven heads. Uh, during that time, you have the three angels that are crying, and then you have the thousand years. And after that, or I should say before the thousand years, you've got the second coming of Christ. But here's some uh, pictures, paintings of, of the different ones, uh, seal, trumpets, and then the incense. In fact, this is the first department of ministry that, that we're talking about here when, the, when things were going on among the trumpets. And then the seven heads, which would be the devil, and when, when the three angels' message, messages are finished, then the next thing is the second coming of Christ. Probation is closed, and then Christ comes. And so you've got, we have three, three pictures in the book of Revelation of Christ coming, and they're all different. And I've pondered that for quite a while, and I think I've got some more page, but let me, let me hold on to that. We'll come back to it a little bit later. Um, first, uh, Luther, Calvin, Arminius, Wesley, Miller, their ministry was from the first apartment of the heavenly sanctuary. They did not understand the second apartment, including Miller. Miller uh, uh, messed up on that. Um, and so, but the light was coming out of the first apartment, even though it was some that didn't even realize it. Today, there's been a change. Christ is our high priest in the second apartment. Now, that doesn't mean that he stopped his, the work that he had in the first apartment. That continues. But in the second apartment, there's a cleansing that goes on. And that's an addition to what, uh, what was done in the first apartment. Yeah. And, so, and that's what uh, 
Laodicea. In fact, the word Laodicea means the people judged or adjudged. There's nothing wrong with the name, but it's the condition. Uh, so here we have um, Jones, Wagner, and White with a message of justification by faith and liberty of conscience. The two go together, coming out of the second apartment. And so the light that's coming from that, all light that we get, have, get, that we get today, comes from the second apartment. That doesn't mean there's nothing going on, I mean, nothing for us to learn from the first apartment, but the light that comes is to prepare us for the second coming of Christ. And that's coming directly out of the second apartment. Um, the uh, <clears throat> uh, yeah, justification, liberty of conscience, and the cleansing of the sanctuary. In that sanctuary, you have the Ten Commandments, which is the law of liberty, and you have the manna in the pot, and you've got Aaron's rod. What, what, what in the world would the Aaron's? What would these? What would these be in there for? Aaron's. Uh, what about the pot of manor? What was what was that for? What? Okay, bread of life, representing Christ. Yeah. Goes back to the Old Testament, showing that I have a picture of a of a um, well, it wasn't modern day uh, manna, but I had a treasure in one of my churches who he was, as a kid in Africa, they uh, they had hard times, especially north of where they were at people were beginning to starve. And God dropped some manna on those people. <laughs> and uh, he had a picture uh, of, uh, of manna in a, in a bowl. And I took a picture of it. I wasn't, wasn't thinking I could have put it in here, but it didn't. But it meant God will sustain you. He sustained the Jews for 40 years. And when the manna finally dried up, that meant you're going into Canaan. And, uh, but what about Aaron's rod? What would that represent? Okay, resurrection, but something else? What? Okay, Christ. Okay, life came out. You had a thought. I said resurrection. Yeah. Life came out. Life came out, yes. Uh huh. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that was involved in it too, yeah. In fact, that was probably the first application of the leadership. Because these men came along, they had, you know, they said, uh, uh, all of Israel is holy <laughs> and we are holy so we don't need you Moses and Aaron uh, and we're going to be the priests the earth, that's the one the yeah, yeah but they said uh, so Moses he didn't argue with him and the Lord in, in, uh, inspired him he said uh, tell them to bring some sticks <laughs> you know, so uh, they laid them out the next day and God said whatever whatever buds that's going to be the, that's, that'll be the leadership and that's exactly what happened. It was only Aaron's rod that budded. And so I think that may be a lesson for us today, um, you know, in the situation that we're in. Uh, Aaron was not a perfect man. He, he made some ter serious mistakes, but he was still a part of God's program and was finally converted. Um, Can I ask what you think the lesson is for us? Pardon me? Can I ask what you think the lesson is for us today? Yeah, I would say leadership that God gives to the Seventh-day Adventist Church that uh, we need to be careful. We tear them. And I disagree with some. I, I know some high-level uh, people, I and I disagree with them, but, but I'm not going to attack them as, uh, uh, as what they are. Uh, I can remove them. That's the only one yeah. should. Yeah. And if he doesn't, it's for our own good. Mm -hmm. It's to humble us, you know. And, by, the, by them putting pressure, we get humbled more. Yeah, yeah. The... Uh, 
you know, we need to be careful uh, in, in some of those instances. And I would say that sometimes people are put in position that shouldn't be there, but, uh, but we need to be careful. We can't see behind the scenes. That's one of the, one of the main reasons for this. Um, we looked the other day at the temple of God, uh, or the courtyard, in a court in heaven, and in the midst of the 24 elders, what happened here? Uh, you have that lamb that was slain and representing Christ in crucifixion. So the, the very center of the second apartment of the sanctuary is a picture of Christ crucified. And it reveals the, the uh, character of God. Yes. Self-sacrifice. What? Can I ask you to repeat what you just said? I don't know if I can the remember it. The very center of what? Did you say the very center of the second apartment? No, it's in the second apartment, but it's the very center of the universe. And I would say all attention of heaven and the universe are zeroed in. So you believe Revelation 5 is the second part? Oh, yeah. What? <laughs> Do I pass? <laughs> no, no, I'm not your judge, well, but chap- your judge, but that's what I think. And a lot yeah. of people, I think, just think that four or five are all the first apartments. Yeah. Ellen White says that well, Revelation 5 is especially to be studied. Yes. There's, one, there's a verse here that shows it's in the second apartment, What's in that? chapter 5. Oh, or, or that's what I believe, <laughs> uh, unless I'm shot down. Chapter 5, and uh, let's see, where are we at? Okay, yeah, verse, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Where did that come from? Daniel 7. Daniel 7, exactly. And that is a... That is a second apartment cleansing of the sanctuary. Plus, you have in Revelation 5, the Lamb comes to the end who sits on the throne. And in Daniel yeah. 7, the Christ, the Son, Son of Man, comes to, comes to the ancient days. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's like... Yeah, there, there's many, many connections between so this them. this has to do with cleansing the sanctuary. Well, that's the work of it. But it, this is... This, yeah, it's dealing with investigative judgment. You have okay. these witnesses, or these... Uh, the, the number of the angels, 10,000 times 10,000, that comes from Daniel 7. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, I'm gonna get into so, but I, I think chapter 4, I think it starts in the first apartment. Yes. And then it moves. And we need to remember that the throne of God is not something that's stationary. It's a living system. If you look at, if you study Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 10, we see that it's made up of living beings. And in Revelation chapter 4, we see the throne moving out of the second apartment into the first apartment where Christ came. And then in, uh, I believe it's chapter 8, or uh, I'm not sure the chapter now, but we see that throne going back into the most holy place. It's a living one. It's not, it's not a throne that sits like the Pope sits on the one that he's got over there. Satan has entered the first apartment trying to hold Yes. He set up a throne that yeah. makes it. Yeah. Yeah. And this text here that you just quoted about the uh, angels. Uh, yeah. In the book, uh, The Great Controversy, in the chapter uh, Facing Life's Record. Yeah. This text and the one in Daniel is quoted together as being the same thing. Yes, exactly. That's pretty good evidence there, too. That mm-hmm. This is uh, the second part of yeah, because she puts the two together as being this, the same event. Yeah. What, yeah. Can you say that once more? I want in Daniel. Oh. The very first uh, in the book, Facing Last Record in the Great Controversy. Okay. This 
this text here in Revelation and also the one in Daniel that is not worded exactly the same, but almost, mm -hmm. um, she puts those two together in the same paragraph saying that they're the same event. Mm -hmm. Revelation five and three. Yeah. Seven. Yes. The, numbering the angels, I think is what that's, that's the connecting point there. We we don't see the uh, transition from the first apartment into the second apartment there uh, in that, but we do it in other you know other parts of the of the scripture. But it's simply giving us a picture of the throne, and it's a living throne, and uh, and God God moves it by His Spirit. And, uh, but, but Christ is the center of, of heaven. And it's the, the principle is that of self-sacrifice, uh, self-sacrificing love. That's what the government is made of. And Lucifer missed it in heaven. And he thought God was selfish. But that's why this thing has had to play out on the earth. And so uh, even on the earth, the, the, the uh, cross of Christ is a reflection of the government of God. It's a reflection of God's uh, was well, a demonstration of God's unconditional love, and that's the that's that's his government is based on that. Um, then we have the three pictures of the second coming of Christ. And uh, chapter one, it says, "Every eye shall see him." There'll be a, a special resurrection, and uh, Nero, I think, is going to be there, and his mother, <laughs> and uh, the high priest that that uh, cursed Christ, he'll be there. Christ said, "You shall see, you shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory." And so, how would you like to die three times? <laughs> he's, he's one of them. But uh, um, then the uh, uh, second one is chapter 14, beginning with verse 14 through the rest of the chapter, and it uh, pictures Christ as a reaper. And I wondered for some time, I wondered, why three pictures? And you know, there are four Gospels, and they cover some of the same material, but there are differences in the Gospels themselves. There, one is giving some additional information that another one doesn't give. And so the, the three comings of Christ, God evidently felt that we could not understand the second coming unless we had different perspectives. So chapter 1, you see him coming with all the angels. Chapter 14, he comes as the reaper. And then chapter 19, he comes as king of kings and lord of lords. And so you've got three different perspectives of the second coming of Christ. Yeah. Okay, here, now, when Christ comes, just before he comes, the, uh, she said, I saw a flaming cloud come where Jesus stood, and he laid off his priestly garment and put on his kingly robe. Now, this is, this would be, he's in the first apartment coming out. And if we follow the analogy from the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. When the priest was finished on the Day of Atonement, he laid aside his priestly robes and came out. No, I'm, I'm sorry, I need to back up. He, he ministered in the um, second apartment in the white robe. And then he, when he came out, he came out with the priestly robes. But he is a priest after, not after the Levitical system. What priesthood is he after? Melchizedek. What was Melchizedek? Both king and priest. They were combined. It's the only safety you can have <laughs> a union of church and state. And that would be what happened with uh, was Melchizedek. But she said, I saw him as he took off his load, took his place on the cloud which carried him to the east where it first appeared to the saints on earth, a small black cloud which was a sign of the Son of Man. 
while the cloud was passing from the holiest to the east, which took a number of days, the synagogue of Satan worshipped at the saints' feet. Yes? So is she saying that Christ's travel time from heaven to earth is going to take some time? Well, evidently, you know, she speaks in another place that the devil himself does not know that probation closes. He's unaware. He's unaware. He has no, no connection with God, so he can't know. He, will, he surmises that maybe it has, but he's going to see when the plagues start falling, then he knows that everything, the whole thing is wrapped up. God's people will be protected. doesn't look like it, but it look, they will be protected, and the devil knows that, that it's curtains for him. And, uh, but uh, evidently that... Um, but remember, which, which direction did the, did the Medes and Persians come from? East. From the east and from the north. They were on the east. They headed north. In fact, I, what I wanted, in fact, I'm going to do it anyhow. <laughs> I've got some maps here, but I'm, I don't have them in this. Um, they came, uh, came alongside the mountains, um, and they were heading up toward, there's a river called uh, Gindes or Gindes, G-Y-N-D-E-S. And they were going to cross that, but they had to wait because it was uh, pretty high water. One of Cyrus's sacred white horses fell into that water and drowned. And he was furious. He said, I'm going to make this river so that a woman can walk across it and not get her knees wet. <laughs> so he stopped. He stopped his advance toward Babylon. They were going to cross and then go over the, another river and then come down between the, the, uh, the two major rivers. And they spent uh, almost a year dividing that river. They had 180 channels. He sent his soldiers on either side. They channeled uh, 180 on each side, 360 channels away from that. And sure enough, a woman could walk across without getting her feet wet or her, her knees wet. Was it a dam? Dammed it up? No, it didn't dam it up. No, they, it was like an irrigation. They just okay. and uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, then. Now, it's interesting that Jeremiah, and I wanted to get into this, but <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 15, 51 talks about the downfall of, of, uh, of Babylon. And God said, through Jeremiah, you shall hear a rumor in one year, and a rumor again a second time the following year. Babylon has fallen, number one, and when they were on the march again, they heard it again, Babylon's going to fall. So there are two messages of Babylon falling. We have that in the spiritual application, Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. She began to fall, but not a complete fall. Chapter 18, there's a complete fall. And it follows the pattern that, uh, that Jeremiah outlined. Burning yes. the river, uh, um, is that part of the scenario that, uh, so they could enter Babylon? Well, this is what he, yes, this is what he, he finally figured out. Uh, by the way, there's a, his, a historian um, by the name of Herodotus. He's a Greek historian. He's the one that recorded this stuff. And when uh, Babylon could not be taken, it was impossible. 
And Cyrus was a tremendous general, but he even, he had some misgivings. Uh, this they had uh, they had enough food in that place to last for 20 years. And they had plenty of water, and uh, the the outer wall was so thick they could run uh, uh, chariot races on, all the way around it. They had two walls. There was a moat. It, w- it was impossible. No one was able to to do it. But Cyrus got to thinking, <laughs> and there was a marsh up north, and so they went up there and cut a line, or several lines. These men were in good in practice, you know, and they cut the line. He stationed soldiers on either end of Babylon where the river came, went in and came out. And when it, when it got down, they started coming in from the one side from the north. When it got to the south side, they came in from uh, underneath. But they still shouldn't have taken the, the city. But all the, huh? Because there's gates inside. All those gates should have been closed. They were all open. There should have been sentries there, but they weren't. Or if they were there, they were drunk. Well, they, they knew that there was a battle that took place though, before they got to, the, to that main room. And it was so far away at that first time that they killed all the, all the soldiers that they came in contact with. Uh, and nobody heard about it. And so they just rushed into this place where, where the king and his people were having a high time and uh, absolutely terrified. I think it happened immediately after he saw the vision and they called Daniel in to say, hey, what, what, what does this mean? We know the Holy God is dwelling in you. <laughs> and so he told him what was, what was going to happen. And I think shortly after that, uh, the Medes and Persians came in. But they'd already practiced. They already had the practice of uh, diverting water. Uh, so that was, uh, I thought that was very interesting to see the, see the connection there. Um, anyhow, the firmament seems filled with radiant forms, 10,000 times 10,000. And thousands of thousands, the same number that we've been looking at. No human pen can portray the scene. No mortal mind is adequate to conceive its splendor. From uh, His, his uh, glory covers the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise, and his brightness was as the light, Habakkuk 3, 3 and 4. As the living cloud comes still north, nearer, every eye beholds the Prince of Life. And even she says in the great controversy that God's people, as they look up and see Christ, they're going to tremble. Who is able to stand? Do you remember what Jesus says? My grace grace is sufficient for you. So (laughs) the book of Revelation begins and ends with grace. And God, when God comes, his grace is still there. Marvelous. So how's our time? What? I need to do 45. Got about, okay, maybe we can do this. Uh, There's another part I want to finish with, but. Uh, this is a survey of uh, Adventism. Now, I mentioned that uh, the Adventist believers were in the Laodicean church, uh, state, and uh, they couldn't believe it. But they were, whether they believed it or not. And uh, uh, White wrote that the Adventist believers were Laodicean. That'd be both whites, both James White and Ellen White. And uh, then... They had hoped that the loud cry would have occurred by this time. <clears throat> and uh, it didn't happen, of course. It didn't happen until in 1880 when it actually began. But they had hoped that it would come at this time. And here's from uh, volume one of the testimonies. In 1859, Mrs. White wrote that nearly all Sabbath-keeping Adventists believed that the message, which was to the Laodiceans, would end in the loud cry of the third angel. And the loud cries to prepare God's people for the <clears throat> time of the end and for the second coming of Christ, for the time of trouble and the second coming of Christ. 
Outside of Adventism, there's known today as a million soul revival. It started in New York, 1857 to 59, and started with uh, two or three men to begin with, then six, then 50,000 men were praying daily. There were 10,000 conversions per week, a million converted to North America by March of 1858. And, uh, <clears throat> and it's interesting, it, uh, well, let, let's uh, take a look at the next one here. In 1857, there was a financial crash, and a church on Fulton Street was open for weekly uh, prayer. And uh, three men began to meet and pray once a week. Others came, then daily meetings. The revival spread to other cities, Philadelphia, Boston, and, um, and other cities and towns. And secular writers wrote about it. And here's, here's one of them. Uh, this is a more modern one. The Third Great Awakening from 1857 to 59 was noted by the secular newspapers for its quiet orderliness everywhere, while through it, more than a million converts were added to the churches. And that's from the Christian History magazine talking about this. Now, the, there was no preaching or very little, I don't think there was any. It was primarily Bible study and prayer meetings, starting in New York, and that's the way it spread. And revival began to take place. Reforms began to take, uh, be instituted. And then, and then it stopped. And the Protestant history, uh, Christian uh, historians have no clue. They don't know why. They said, we don't know why it began. We don't know why it ended. But we have a clue. And this is it. <clears throat> Ellen White. She said, angels were sent in every direction to prepare unbelieving hearts for the truth. The cause of God began to rise and his people were acquainted with their position. If the counsel of the true witness had been fully heeded, that's the, third, uh, that's the Laodicean message, God would have wrought for his people in greater power. When this message died among the Advent believers, it died outside of Adventism. That's the only reason for it. These angels were sent everywhere to bring them in, but... They, the, the people, she goes on in that context, I think it was by 1859, that uh, they thought the Lord would come before this. It was about three years of this type of thing, uh, two, two, two to three years. And when it didn't happen quickly, they decided that, well, maybe it wasn't going to come. This started getting, starting a backslide. And when that happened, it was, they, it was stopped outside of Adventism. God has given this church the message to prepare people for the second coming of Christ. And I believe those people still can be saved outside. I'm not saying that. But we're, we're the only bunch that are supposed to be giving a message to prepare people. And we're living now in the time of the latter rain who loud cry. We have been in that since 1888. And I think it's coming back. Hopefully it will continue. Um, but anyhow, by 1863, the, the Adventist church was organized and at that same time, same year, there was a national reform movement that began in Ohio. And uh, a group, there were groups of I think, Presbyterians and different ones. And then in uh, 1882, Wagner saw Christ lifted up before him. He was in a tent meeting. Ellen White was preaching. He said, I don't remember what was said, but he said, I saw Christ lifted up before me. And that's when he was converted. 
And he said, when I saw that, I saw that he, he died for me. And I determined at that point that I would search the Scriptures and look for Christ in every part of the Bible. And that, that's, what he did, that's what he did. And um, then you have Butler and Wagner in correspondence. They were disagreeing on things in the book of uh, Galatia. And um, then, in fact, Butler had written a, uh, an article or several articles, but one especially where he was insisting that the, that the law in Galatians was the ceremonial law only. And Wagner said it's the moral law primarily. And so that was the conflict that went on between them. And by 1888, Ellen White has said, well, uh, Dr. Uh, Wagner needs an opportunity to present his position. And that's, that's the why, why he gave it at, uh, in Minneapolis. Um, <clears throat> And, uh, and you know some of the history of that. That same year, 1888, there was what known as the Blair Sunday Law Bill, both May and December. And um, so 1863 was the National Reform Movement. They were the ones behind this thing. And this is what they had to say. This is a little later. This was in 1884. Their desire was, we need a Sabbath, talking about Sunday, a law that will bind the government and the corporation as well as the individual. In May 21 of 1888, Henry Blair, United States Senator from New Hampshire, introduced to the Senate the following bill. We need a bill to secure to the people the enjoyment of the first day of the week, commonly known as the Lord's Day, as a day of rest, and to promote its observance as a day of religious worship. And then there are six sections that define the bill that follow this. And the word promote is not bad. I mean, it's not a, it's not a heavy word, at least. So here's, here's a... Um, calendar of that. So it was on the 21st of May, the Sunday Law Bill by Blair was introduced. Then, and with a with term of uh, promoting it. And so then, now this was in May, in December of 1888, you had the second Congress, same, same Congress was the second session, I should say, and um, uh, of the 50th con Congress. A hearing was requested in which the Blair Sunday Bill was urged for passage. Mrs. Batum from the Women's Christian Temperance Union asked for the following change in the Blair Bill. A bill to secure to the people the enjoyment of the Lord's Day, commonly known as Sunday, as a day of rest, and to protect its observance as a day of worship. So there's a change from promoting to protecting. And uh, that happened in December of uh, on the 13th of December. Now something happened in between May and December, <laughs> and that was the, uh, <clears throat> the meeting at Minneapolis. From October 10 to November 4 of 1888, the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists met in, uh, in Minneapolis. This is a, an old picture of that. There were only about 100 delegates to that um, session. And <clears throat> from, the, they had the pre-session uh, called the Institute, oh, I need to back up here a little bit, um, where the preachers get together and discuss theology. And this is when, when uh, Jones and Wagner were pre preaching some, and then uh, Wagner especially on into the general conference sessions themselves. And so from the 10th of November, October through November 4 was the general conference. And <clears throat> this is what Ellen White had to say about, about what happened. This was about three years later. She said, the time of test is just upon us, for the loud cry of the third angel has already begun in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ, the sin-pardoning 
Redeemer. And, um, yeah, okay, uh, 1SM363. So the loud cry began in the Minneapolis meetings, and these were the two that God had chosen to lead out in that. And so the Sunday law had to be, the bill had to be stopped um, because that message was not fully accepted at that time. And so Jones, who was the religious liberty at that time, leader at that time, was sent to Washington to contest the Blair Sunday Bill. And there were Seventh-day Baptists there also, and, um, but they requested the following addition to the bill. And it was something like this. Any person that has habitually and conscientiously refrained from all labor on Saturday, believing that to be the Sabbath, shall on proof thereof be exempt from the penalties of the law, provided he has not on Sunday interfered with the rights of others to a day for rest and worship. Now, this, uh, this finally became one of the statements of those who were pushing for the Sunday law also, not just the Seventh-day Baptists. But, um, <clears throat> but Jones objected to the whole idea of exemption. Yeah. And you, you can read about it. If you have the, the two republics, page 845 to 47, is a, a transcript of the proceedings that took place in Washington. On p- page 849, we read Jones's insight as to the issues involved in the idea of exemption as put forth by advocates of the Sunday Law Bill. He says, if the law be just, there can be no just exemption. If the law is right, exemption is wrong. If the exemption is right, then the law is wrong. Therefore, their offer an advocacy of exemption is an open confession that the law is unjust, that under the law without the exemption, the people would be denied the equal protection of the law. Yet though this be true, the exemption is neither offered nor advocated upon principle, but solely for policy's sake. So, but he had, uh, now to begin with, he only had, I think, about five minutes to speak and uh, when he first went in. But his speech was moved the Blair so much. He said, I want you to come back in the afternoon. Because uh, Jones was re- repeating everything from memory for five, maybe ten minutes. Because I think you know, the Baptists finally gave him some, their time. And, but it was not very long at all. But it, was, it moved Blair. He said, I want you to come back. So in the afternoon, uh, Jones came, went back with the books. <laughs> and he laid it before them. And that Sunday bill stopped. So one, one man, the Holy Spirit working through one man. And uh, they. Yeah, on, on yeah. principle, yeah. Um, now, um, let me see. Ellen White said that this was a direct fulfillment of, uh, of prophecy. Uh, I'm going to have to get going. There's something I want to close with, but uh, the um, here, here's this page. She said it was a plain, direct fulfillment of prophecy, calling upon people to arouse God's people to the demands of the crisis. If they did, they would not be in such stupor and death-like slumber. They didn't even recognize what was happening uh, in, the, in the world around them. And that's in 5T719. And again, she said, this was the direct fulfillment of prophecy. And uh, I'm going to skip to the end. This is Review and Herald, January 12, 1889. So this was just right after the meetings in Minneapolis. Now, I want to look at this one and one other thing. On February 18, 1890, a hearing was held before the House Committee on the Breckenridge Bill. Um, 
Breckenridge of Kentucky introduced a bill designed to prevent anyone from being forced to labor on Sunday within the District of Columbia. SDAs pointed out that it was deceptive because no one was being compelled to labor on Sunday. <laughs> so it was a bogus argument. But anyhow, the real purpose of the bill was to force people to rest on Sunday. The bill appeared to be just an initial step in the pathway of religious legislation uh, toward complete Sunday laws. And this is from Eric Sim, Sim. Um, Enter Jones here. Jones with two other Adventists stood before the committee and spoke against the bill. Jones argued powerfully against the bill's constitutionality. The House committee recognized the bill was religious in nature and a violation of the First Amendment. The bill was defeated. But there's something else. This was a letter from Olson was writing to someone else. He said, Brother Jones stated that he had never realized the blessing of God in such a measure as when he spoke before the committee of that house in the last hearing. He said it seemed as though the sentences were, that he should speak were written on the wall or suspended in the air before him. And it was not only they themselves that felt that uh, they had, had a blessing, but all who were present could appreciate and realize that the power of God was there in a most remarkable manner. All these things are encouraging indications. <laughs> And this is uh, Elder John, or Olson was the general council president at the time. He wrote, wrote to Elder Tenney. Okay, now I'm going to close with this one. This is what we need to remember that when Christ, in, in John 6 37, he says, I will hold you by a hand that will never let go. Now there's a double negative in that. Now, in, what happens when we have a double negative in English? It becomes a positive, but not here. There's two different Greek words in here, and the idea is I will never, ever, absolutely not <laughs> let you go. And, uh, uh, and the question is, have you ever failed? Have you tried before and failed? We need to remember that failure does not mean defeat. And here, faith comes by the word of God. Then grasp his promise. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Cast yourself at his feet with a cry, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. You can never perish while you do this. Never. There's our of ages. 429. Now, she was writing this to a sister who was in down in the dumps. And uh, I'll come back to it a little bit later. But he said, the message from God to me for you is, him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. If you have nothing else to plead before God but this one promise from your Lord and Savior, you have the assurance that you will never, never be turned away. It may seem to you that you are hanging upon a single promise, but appropriate that one promise and it will open to you the whole treasure house of the riches of the grace of Christ. Cling to that promise and you are safe. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. You are as safe as though inside the city of God. <laughs> Isn't that marvelous? <laughs> That's from 10 uh, manuscript, uh, 175. That was a letter to Lizzie Inns. And then this, this one was to a friend. And you can find this. It's the last chapter of the book, uh, Testimonies to Ministers. 
Jesus declares, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. That is, there is no possibility of my casting him out. For I have pledged my word to receive him. And this is one of the last letters that she wrote. You know, she, well, she died uh, the next year. Uh, but um, this was the middle of the year, 18, uh, uh, 1914. But she was encouraging her friends <laughs> to not give up that Christ was not going to give up on them. And we need to remember that ourselves. When times get tough, we don't get tougher. Christ gets tougher. <laughs> and his grace is always sufficient. His grace is always um, outstrips, out, uh, outstrips sin, always. Whether it's discouragement or whatever it is, um, we're learning to live by faith alone. And we, that faith of Jesus is believing not only in the absence of feelings, but against them. Now, I've got a confession to make. I've been under a tremendous amount of pressure this week, both physically and like a burden bowed down. Most of these presentations have been by faith alone. I was at a point where I thought maybe I just I ought to give up. But the burden lifted yesterday. <laughs> I tell you, I was almost dancing. <laughs> Not quite. I don't dance anymore. But it was such a relief. And I, I couldn't figure out why. I said, Lord, I don't... No, that's all right. No, that's all right. No, no. That's, I didn't, that didn't bother me at all. Uh, but I know that, that uh, the enemy does not like this message whatsoever. We can be assured that we're going to be faced with that opposition all the time. And I told Shirley this morning, I said, you know, the, the cloud list lifted yesterday. And I said, God was evidently teaching me a lesson on character building. <laughs> to believe in him. Uh, against your feelings. Uh, yeah, against, yeah, all my feelings were against me. But I praise God that... Uh, <laughs> yeah, preaching more power. Uh, more experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to pray for our pastors who are now having to get study. That's right. We've yeah. got to pray for them. Yeah. Which the Lord wants to use as part of that group, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Join together. Yeah. Well, we better close. It's been great to be with you folks. And, and, uh, this is so good. Let's, let's pray. Over again to me, wonderful words of love. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful words of love. Yeah. 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 Shall we pray? Father, we thank you so much for the, um, the message that you've given to us over a hundred years ago, well, actually, all the way back to 1844. We pray we might understand more about Jesus, that we might understand his faith and the message of salvation and liberty of conscience that you've given to us. May we have a, a humble and holy boldness to present Christ. We pray for the infilling of the Holy Spirit, the last days, the loud cry, the latter rain. We know it's coming. May we be ready for it. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.